you tell me at what year since the, the, the first slave patrols to now, what year it was that policing went awry? What year is it that we just need to get back to? And if we just start doing what we were doing in that year, that everything is going to be okay for everybody. I, I challenge you to do that. You're not going to find a year because there's never a year where it was working right for anybody. Hello and welcome back to Voir Dear. We have been on hiatus for the past year because I've been clerking for a judge, but we are back and we have some exciting new updates. First and foremost, we have moved. We are no longer part of the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School, but instead we've moved just down the street to Harvard Kennedy School's program in criminal justice policy and management. With that, you'll see a few changes, including hearing from some new folks on the podcast. I've always felt like it would be better if it wasn't just me interviewing people, but it's hard to get people to volunteer their time to do this. But luckily, the chair of the program in criminal justice, Professor Sandra Susan Smith, has agreed to share some of the conversations that they've been having on campus around reimagining community safety. So you'll be hearing some different voices uh, than mine, which should be a welcome relief. Without further ado, I'd like to bring you a conversation between Professor Smith and Kat Brooks. This felt like the right conversation to start with after a difficult year in which conversations about policing are all the more salient. And I'm going to let Professor Smith take it from here. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back um, and welcome for those who are here for the first time. It is my absolute pleasure to be able to welcome Kat Brooks from the Anti-Police Terror Project. I think in some ways this conversation, is, it will be slightly different than conversations we've had to date. So for instance, the last two weeks, we've talked about how to reduce violence, especially among young people and communities that have been negatively affected by high rates of violence. What seems to be very clear is that in some communities, um, of color. One of the perpetrators of violence are the police themselves. And so we thought that we would invite Kat Brooks here to share with us the work that she is doing with the Anti-Police Terror Project. Um, Kat Brooks is the executive director of the Justice Teams Network. This network has been engaged in the struggle against state violence for well over a decade. After losing her father at the age of eight to Nevada Penitentiary System, she continued to witness the ways that law enforcement brutalized black and brown communities. So in 2009, after years of organizing around a myriad of social justice issues, Kat became deeply involved in the struggle for justice for Oscar Grant, which unbeknownst to her would forever change her life. Since that time, Kat has worked on the front lines of resisting state violence, um, including co-founding the Anti-Police Terror Project, whose mission is to rapidly respond to and ultimately eradicate police violence from communities of color. The Anti-Police Terror Project has trained thousands of people in their rapid response model, which is currently being implemented across the state of California and the country. So I'm really excited to have Kat become a part of this conversation. Welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. So let me start by asking you uh, about the motivation to co-found the Anti-Police Terror Project. Can you share the experiences that led to the founding of this organization? 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's you. They're sort of all in the bio, right? This is about sort of how they all link together. And mm -hmm. it, it took me a minute of doing this work to actually start the answer to that question earlier than when we founded APTB, right? And and it really does go back to my own experiences growing up as a Black girl and, and then a Black woman in the United States of America. And I grew up, I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, which most folks think about, right? You see casinos and fun and party and all that other stuff, but it's an actual real city where real people live and have real life experiences. And when I was growing up, Vegas was like this big and you could get, I mean, anywhere in five minutes, the whole town. The other thing that's really important to know about Las Vegas is that it was incredibly racially segregated. And that makes sense if you think about the two founding groups of Las Vegas, or at least the two groups that developed Las Vegas, and that's the Mormons and the mob. And so if you look at the, the anti-Blackness, right, that exists um, in both of those demographics, the, the fact that it uh, was racially segregated in extreme violence against Black bodies, throw in cowboys and cowboy culture, and you're talking about a pretty deadly cocktail, right, for Black folks. And so I grew up hearing about law enforcement and experiencing racism. My mom's white, my dad's Black. And so that was the other thing is that I would be with my mother on one side of Las Vegas, and then we would cross the proverbial, you know, train tracks, and then I would be in the black side, and and was aware enough as a child to see the difference in quality of life and how people were living, in access to to certain types of food, even then, and of course the way law enforcement treated us. I grew up hearing stories about black folks being taken to the desert. In fact, that term, eighty six, eight miles out and six feet deep. That's what that means. And then my father did absolutely struggle with substance abuse issues. He's clean and sober and healthy now and has been for, you know, I don't know, 25, maybe 30 years now. And, and ultimately that landed him in prison. But I was very close to my father and he was a, a pretty central figure in my life. And what I understood even at a young age was that my daddy was sick, right? And that he needed help. And that being locked away in a cage, he was not going to get that help. And so, of course, then I'm not taking that then to, you know, any larger analysis, but but that was that was clear to me. Some of my earlier, early experiences with law enforcement included being pulled over because my boyfriend at the time, who was also white, was in the car having my car thrashed, trashed by law enforcement, broke my dashboard, the whole thing, for, for literally for no reason, and then walking away laughing. I had a bumper sticker on my car that said, question authority. I was all of 17 when this happened. Also very early on in my life, the first time I was ever threatened with rape, it was by a cop, again, around, around 17, 18. And in my younger years, you know, watching my father be profiled, harassed, tossed around, uh, though that was difficult. My father's a big dude, so backup being called and, and my father being tossed around by law enforcement. So so all of these things shaped me. And 1992, the, the beating of Rodney King and, and that whole experience in the trial, I was a junior, senior in high school. So all of these things, right? And, and the first real job I had was as a communication specialist for an organization in Los Angeles called Community Coalition. It was founded by now Congress member Karen Bass. And that's where I learned to be an organizer where that became my organizing home. And it was during my time at Community Coalition, a young 14-year-old kid stole a car. He must have been this big. And he stole a car. And in, in, instead of time and space and de-escalation, he was unarmed. LAPD just unloaded into this baby's, in, into this baby's body. So we did some organizing around that. And I remember that jerking me in a particular kind of way, but, but kept it pushing. Had a baby, moved to Oakland to continue my education work. 
and on January 1st, 2009, a young black unarmed man named Oscar Grant had taken the, the public transit home and there was some sort of verbal exchange between the folks that Oscar was with and these other guys on the train. Oscar, within minutes, was called a bitch-ass nigger, slammed to the ground, handcuffed, and shot in the back. I watched that video over and over and over again. I couldn't, you know, the, 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 I just, I couldn't get myself out of the loop. My daughter was four. And me immediately making the connection that her body was not safe. And and that was that was sort of it. During that time I met uh, a group of amazing Black organizers. We ultimately formed an organization called Onyx that was largely responsible for most of the protests you saw between 2010 and 2014. And then we had a conversation with each other because we are all trained organizers about what were we actually accomplishing. Like it was great that we could pull like literally seven to 12,000 people in the streets 24 hours like that. And we were responding to not just OPD murders, but murders that were happening across the country. It was in, you know, we were capturing media, we were impacting the public debate, but the state just kept killing us. And so APTP was born to be not just a reactionary response to state violence, but a visionary response. So our mission is to, to interrupt, to rapidly respond to interrupt and ultimately eradicate state violence. So, so what does that mean in, in, in concrete terms? What do you do? Like, give me an example of, of some maybe recent event where you were activated in this way and, and engage in these activities that define APTP. Right, so I'll do a couple of buckets here. So the, the, let's start with the first responders model. That was our first program. And what that is, is a literal step-by-step guide for communities to respond to incidents of state violence. Co- cops don't tell us the truth. <laughs> we don't get the information. Communities are traumatized and families need support. And so we do all of those things. We, we train people in trauma-informed investigation. They learn how to collect evidence. They learn how to identify witnesses, mm-hmm. how to protect the witnesses and any information that they capture. You've got a legal cohort that we put with the family right away that offer you know, pro bono legal support. We do healing justice work, both with the families and with the communities, because th- there's not even a word to talk about how traumatizing this is, both, you know, especially for the family, but for Black people, period, right? Whether you're in the immediate neighborhood or around the country, we all scream when we hurt Breonna Taylor's. We all felt that in our in our bodies, right? Because we live hunted on American soil. So we help communities do, do vigils, et cetera. We do fundraising, or we do organizing, of course. Because the other thing that's really important to note is that, you know, you'll hear someone's name, even in big cases, right? Like Brianna's name isn't in the media every day. You hear it for a, a hot minute. These cases go on and on and on and on. We protect families because unlike in other instances where cops may knock on the door and offer their support to solve the murder, it, it flips. Our families are, are stalked. The cops show up at their job. They sit outside their house and they call them and threaten them. Like it's it's a whole thing. And, and so we had to activate that model a lot here in Oakland. Yvette Henderson, she was murdered in 2015. And what we ultimately discovered was that she had been shot with an AR-15 in broad daylight. She was a 38-year-old mother and grandmother. Now we found that out, not because law enforcement gave us that information, but because our first responders come from a wide array of backgrounds. They went through the protocols and they found the casing on the ground. And that was ultimately helpful to the family later on in their civil suit. Luckily, OPD hasn't murdered anybody here since 2018 directly because of the movement that we built here. But two days ago, you know, we got a call in Sacramento 
then that chapter had to go out. We've trained people in Chicago, all throughout the South, um, Southern California and Canada on that model. Alternative responses, Anti-Police Terror Project has developed what's called MH First, Mental Health First. We respond, we are a non-911 response to mental health crisis, interpersonal violence, substance abuse issues. And, and that's for a bunch of reasons, right? But the, the two big ones are that no matter how bad the emergency, there are large swaths of the Black community that aren't ever going to call 911 ever. It doesn't matter. And so that just means that survivors of, of, of violence and or people that are in deep crisis and need help don't get it. And and then and, and that's because that's tied to the second reason that law enforcement very rarely de-escalates things in communities of color or makes it better, right? Almost always uh, the situation is escalated, resulting in bodily harm, incarceration, or in the worst cases, murder. And the point of MH First is and, and alternative programs and our demand for these programs to be uh, created and, and our, our hopefully inspiration is that we can't tell people not to call the police if there's nothing else for them to call. We're all taught the exact same thing from you know, time immemorial, right? That's the number you dial. Those are the people that keep us safe. But what happens when the people <laughs> that are supposed to keep you safe are actually a bigger problem than the issue that you're calling about? And so we failed at that and, and we, we we hold some responsibility about that and, and we call out our movement as a whole that we haven't made replicable models, small replicable models that we where we can show the masses that you actually don't need to respond to every single social ill with a badge and a gun. So APTP has been described as deploying radical uh, approaches or tactics that some find counterproductive. So for instance, in 2015, George Holland, you're already laughing, president of the um, NAACP's Oakland branch said actions like ATP's BART takeover were counterproductive, that you're affecting people who didn't really have anything to do with the problem. And people lost their jobs because they weren't able to get to work because you shut down the bark and other activities like this. How do you respond to these kind of critiques? Well, you're seeing part of how I respond yeah. to it. <laughs> and not, listen, it's not that, that I don't care that we don't care about how other people feel. We just don't care as much as the fact that that action was held because Mike Brown was murdered, <laughs> right, in, in, in Ferguson. And, and it actually wasn't an APTP action. We led and supported it. And that was actually the first action of the Black Lives Matter Bay Area chapter of which I was a founding member, that chapter no longer exists. We held it on Black Friday because from our perspective, you were getting on this train for, for the most part, to go spend thousands of dollars on what? Meanwhile, Black death abounds in this country. Nobody ever hit us up as that they lost their jobs. We shut down the bar. Our goal was to hold it for four hours and 28 minutes. That's how long Michael Brown lay in the street. We weren't able to hold it that long. We went to jail before that. We were, our, our you know, support teams were facilitating Ubers and Lyfts and taxi cabs for folks that were downstairs. But ultimately at the end of the day, and, and you know, as I say this, you know, it, it, y'all do an internal examination. If we didn't put this issue in your face, you're not having the conversation, right? Because you don't have to. And, and if, if you're not having the conversation, then how are we gonna get justice? And, and, and that's the piece I, I think that still gets my ire up and, and where you may see me get, you know, a little more excited. The normal is, is, is if, if white people were being gunned down at a rate of one to three a day, would that be cool? That'd be all right, right? If business as usual would just continue. But because it's black people 
then somehow there is, we have the, right, this criticism that we have the audacity to assert our human, humanity with a very simple demand, stop killing us. So I'll tell you what, we, our business as usual is interrupted every single day, every single day, right? Because we're racially profiled and targeted, because we are raped by law enforcement, which is how Black women experience state violence for the most, because we are targeted at our jobs for what our hair looks like, because we are sending our children to substandard educational facilities, and they in turn are sending them to, to you know, into the carceral state, because we are murdered, because we are beaten. That is the reality of being Black in this country. And so you're a couple of minutes late for work because we've taken the streets or taken the bridge or taken a, a, a bus. You can say that to me and I'm going to hear you say that. And then I'm going to start spitting facts to you. And, and to me, your moral compass as a human being should be to agree with us that unarmed Black teenagers should not be gunned down in the street in broad daylight in the, in the country that advertises itself as being the greatest democracy on earth. So, of course, then my question would be, to what extent does that work in terms of opening up a dialogue with people who are not paying attention, haven't thought about it, don't, you know, are fairly apathetic about what's happening? To what extent does this engage those folks who, for whom apathy is the norm? I think the proof is in the pudding. I think where we are right now, 2021, the political moment we are in right now, the conversations we are having nationally about redirecting money from law enforcement, defunding police departments and investing in programs and resources and supports that actually build true community safety, conversations about decarceration, alternative models for responses to things that don't require cops springing up all over the country. That didn't come out of this moment alone, right? I've heard people say, this is just at rallies, right? This is just the beginning. This is just beginning. This is the beginning of nothing. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a moment on a continuum of a very long fight for, for Black justice, Black liberation in this country. African people have responded since the first one of us was kidnapped and dropped on these shores and we continue to resist. And so I say, where we are right now, this iteration, right? You have to look to 2009 in, in Oakland, California and what we did and, and look to the fact that that was also the time of Arab Spring and people were in Egypt holding up signs that said, I am Oscar Grant. You have to think about the organizing and the phone calls, all the stuff that, that you don't see on camera, right? The calls that I'm on with organizers in Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles, the networks that we've built, the papers that we've written, APTP made a very intentional decision that one of our strands of work was going to be impacting the public debate, that we were going to make a movement that you were no longer going to call our dead loved ones, the suspect that was shot by law enforcement on the corner of 26 and Adeline, he had a name, <laughs> he had a family, as a human being, because, because if, if you can't, if you are allowed to ignore their humanity, then you can ignore the problem. So you see even that conversation is being shifted. The types of people that are getting elected at the local, state, and federal level, the state is reacting, right? And, 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 and the state is doing what it always does, right? They've offered us concessions. Well, here's a body camera, or here's some training. And Black people and our allies have continued to say, no, that's not enough because we're still dying. And so I, I, this, this moment that we're in says, yes, it worked. And it, it is because we have turned up the heat and continue to escalate and turn up the heat and are going to continue to escalate and turn up the heat until black death by cop is not um, a daily occurrence in the United States of America. So black death by cop, when that conversation um, starts, it's not unusual to have people respond by saying, you're focusing on cops, but there's so much black on black violence in communities, black people killing each other. How do you respond when people um, bring that up? It's an interesting word, the word root. 
the root of the problem. The root of Black people killing Black people is not Black people. <laughs> the root of Black people killing Black people and poor white people killing poor white people and poor Asian people killing poor Asian people and poor Latinx people killing poor Latinx people is, is, is the state. And so what we say is all violence is state violence because it is the state that creates the conditions that allow that type of behavior to, 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 to perpetrate. Meaning, when, when people have mental health and trauma supports, when people have food, adequate, excuse me, adequate food, clothing, shelter, education, economic opportunity, guess what? Crime, so-called crime, that. When people can forge a living in the above ground economy, they don't have to make a living in the uh, uh, underground economy. So I, I ask you, if you needed to eat, you no, know, like really, not just like you, you were trying to figure out how to get from, you know, what you have in your pocket this week as a college student to, to, to next week. But I mean, really needed to eat or you had children to feed, uh, a mother to take care of. How far are you willing to go? I, I'm, I'm the mother of 15 year old. Luckily, I, I have jobs. I have work. I promise you. If I needed to feed my daughter and I had tried all of the, the, the traditional pathways to being able to do that, I'm going to do what I have to do. And so the state has fallen down on this job. The state breaks people. It, break, it literally breaks people. We track black children literally from schools into prisons, or as Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. says, American concentration camps, right? Where they are beaten, they are tortured, they are starved, they witness horrific trauma, and then we spit them back out onto the street with no resources, support to therapy. And we say, and if you breathe wrong, we're going to send you back. Under those conditions, would you be able to forge a successful life? Are you going to be able to deal with the PTSD that you are living with every single day and, and get up and go to work and do all the things that you're supposed to do? And, and, and so, yes, all violence is state violence. And, and actually, and there's, you know, folks make this case in different ways. The, the Black man living next to me, it's not his job to protect me. He's not the person that, that I'm supposed to call when I'm in danger. He's just another person trying to survive the madness that is this American experiment just like me. And so it's actually worse. It's actually worse when cops kill us, right? Because where do we go? There is nowhere to So there's a diversity of opinion within Black and brown communities about the role that police should play in containing and controlling crime and bringing lawmakers to justice. How do you make sense of this diversity perspective? And what do you say um, to those who contend that public safety cannot be ensured without the presence of police, without that force to, to make people you know, fall in line? Well, of course, there's a diversity of opinion. Black people are not a monolith. I mean, I know folks wish were. I wish people, you know, people say, well, Ava DuVernay said that the black folks want blah, blah, blah. That's not, that's just not the reality. We have different lived experience. We live in different parts of the country. Our experience of white supremacy and racism is different. You know, that there's, there's black folks that, that have made it per se, and they have, have one analysis. And then there's, there's folks that are living in the type of poverty I can't even imagine. So of course there's diversity of opinion. All I can do is take my informed opinion. And, and that's important because everybody can have an opinion, but based on what? Which book did you read, right? Well, I watch the news. I'm sorry, CNN, MSNBC, that didn't cut it, right? Your informed op opinion. All I can take is my informed opinion, plus my lived experience, plus my deep engagement with the people, right? And the conversations that I'm having with the people. 
And from there, create an organizing an organizing strategy, which isn't about leading the people around by their nose, right? And 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 that's that's the other thing. Like organizers don't go in and, and put put magic juice inside of people's water. We don't brainwash people. Um, we go in and have conversations about where they're at, and we ask them, "What about your life? Would you like to see shift?" And then we work to build power from the ground up because that's the only kind of power that 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 actually matters. And and if you have a different opinion than, than I do or the people that I organize with do, then you should do your own organizing. But if, if the organizing that you're doing is in facilitation of the state's objectives and keep our people in 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 the the, the gutter, then you're going to hear uh, fr from us. And then I, I think I think you asked me a question about the levels of crime now. Oh, the only the only mechanism to keep us safe. My question would be to you, is it working? Is it? I mean, I mean look at Americans, America's crime stats and tell me, is it working? The answer is no. And, and I'll localize it to Oakland, right? So in the city of Oakland, where I live, we give almost 50% of our yearly budget to the Oakland Police Department. And every single year, we remain on the top, on the list of the top 10 most violent cities in America. It's not working for anybody. And, and so this moment, what we're talking about, when we talk about reimagine public safety, we're talking about getting to the gun before the bullet flies, instead of standing with the mother as she puts her child in the ground. For folks that, that, that you know, human life doesn't matter to you, we're talking about getting to the kid before he breaks your window to steal whatever he's stealing to sell it to eat. That, he, that he's got a full belly. Uh, she's got a roof over her head. What do you do with that police? Right, that's the, well, yeah, of course, and the and next that's, question. How do you achieve safety? security without police because that's you present the is it working but what people are often imagining is how much worse it would be if you actually remove them from the scene how do you know it's going to be worse yeah and let's just let's sit with that because you've never experienced that you have never lived in a world where you didn't have a militarized occupying army as the definition of safety. Now think about that too. A militarized police department that literally have tanks that roll down certain community streets. That's safety. Putting hurt people back on the street after they've encountered one of the most violent institutions in the world. That's safety. I mean, think about it. It's not working. And so, and we're not, and we're not saying, okay, tomorrow, like everybody's going to wake up tomorrow. There will be an absence of, of any type of law enforcement anywhere. I think people have this image of black folks running crazy, running wild in the streets, right? Doing all of the things that you imagine that we want to do. We're, and we're also not talking about, we need nothing. We need something. We absolutely need something. Right. But does that something need to look like what we currently have? And, and our resounding answer is no. And that actually what we currently have exacerbates the problem, doesn't help it. So you build replicable alternative models. You test things out. You try things. In the Laurel District in Oakland, we have Community Ready Corps. They are who the business, and that's a business district. The businesses call them first. You try it out, right? We're working on a model of response to interpersonal violence. You try it out. But what we can't keep doing is continue doing the same thing. Well, that's the definition of insanity, right? Now what they say, doing the exact same thing and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll, I'll talk to the white folks here. What we're doing isn't working for you either. It's not working for you either. Because this idea you have in your head of what the cops do, if you just sit for a minute, is not your lived reality. <laughs> And if it was your lived reality, you wouldn't be so terrified of crime because you wouldn't know what it is so deeply.
So <clears throat> across the country, people are pointing to the spikes in violence, maybe as a result of COVID, maybe as a, in response to the constant viewing of new Black folks being murdered. Who knows what it's in response to, but across the country, we see these spikes. And so the response, at least by some to this, is we can't defund the police. Of course, we can look at these spikes. What are we supposed to do with the increase in violence that we see across the country? Who's going to manage that? Who's going to control that? So there's a there's a there's this response to the defund the police movement, pointing to things like spikes in violence, spikes in crime, as why the police remain a legitimate force. How do you respond to those kinds of concerns, critiques? Now, now you all are, 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 are way smarter than I am. I, I could have never gotten into an institution like yours. So I, I think it'll take us nothing but a minute to, to debunk or, or to deconstruct this logic. The police have the funding now. The police are in power to deal with this now. We haven't defunded anything or anyone or any institution. And yet spikes in crime persist in every major city across the country and the cops aren't able to deal with it. To me, that is a resounding argument to invest in something else and to stop throwing good money after bad because clearly what they do, the patterns and practices that they have in place and the way that they are going about things isn't working. My final question, I think. so. In cities across the country, legislators are putting forward bills that seek to reform the criminal legal system, trying to address these issues of police brutality and other kind of racial inequities. The strategies you know, are intended to increase transparency and accountability. They focus on a lot of things like limits on police use of force, increased use of body-worn cameras, implicit bias training, citizen review boards, better training, more training, the list goes on. What do you think about these efforts? And what do you say to those who contend that, that we've made significant progress over the past 20 so years, the rates of violence, police against black and brown people, that's declined. And you know, we just need a little bit more time and a few more tweaks here and there. I'm trying to think about where I wanna start. I think, I think where I wanna start is, is like there's reform, and then there's reform, right? And so for a, a hot minute, we, APTP, we didn't engage in reform. And the reason why we didn't engage in reform was because reform is about fixing things. Policing isn't broken, you know, it, 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 it's not. You can't fix something they broke. Policing in this country was born out of indigenous genocide and slave trade. Its job then was to catch, kill, and contain black bodies in the service of race-based capitalism and it's still doing its job, right? And so the cops take this stuff all personally, right? I'm a good person. It's not about you. It's about the institution that you work for. It's not a couple of bad apples, right? It's the whole damn orchard and we need to uproot the whole thing and, and, and replant some some new stuff. And if you want to push back at me on that, you you tell me at what year since the, the, the first slave patrols to now, what year it was that policing went awry? What year is it that we just need to get back to? And if we just start doing what we were doing in that year, that you tell me, if we just go back to doing that, that everything is going to be okay for everybody. I, I challenge you to do that. You're not going to find a year because there's never a year where it was working right for anybody. People say that it's declined. I would like to know what, what data set, right? What years are you talking about? Because in the years that I've been tracking this, 
it's actually remained a pretty steady average, somewhere between 980 and 1,200 people every single year, every single year that law enforcement kills. And where I live in California, we have the most violent law enforcement departments in the country. That's right, sunny progressive California. Our cops kill more people than anybody else while similarly providing them with more transparency and accountability protections than anywhere else. So remember the state wants us to go back to work, go back to work, make money, spend money and shut up. That is, right? that is what the state wants us to do. And so they do things, particularly when things escalate to a particular way. Like how do we prevent this from becoming an actual thing that we have to deal with in the, in the only way? Like if we were ever an actual threat to the state, your country would do things to our bodies that you can't imagine. You imagine the stuff happening in Honduras or Guatemala or other places, right, that we demonize, even though all that stuff is happening with U.S. support. That's not this talk, but, but, but that's, that's reality. And so they do things like they give us trainings and, and God bless Dr. Eberhardt. Like I have, I feel bad sometimes when we get to this part of the conversation because I actually have never met the woman I think she's very smart. And I actually think she cares about black people very deeply. But you can't say implicit bias to me because I'm gonna say, you mean racism? You can't say explicit bias to me because I mean, you mean violent racism, right? Because that's what we're talking about. And, and I'm gonna quote Chairman Fred Jr. again, because he's an ally and a comrade. When you water down the words, when you start speaking a euphemism, you water down the will of the people to resist. So we have to call things what they are. It's not state, you know, it's not police brutality, it's state violence or state terror. They're not prisons, they're American concentration camps, and it's not gentrification, it's a land grab. Um, and let's so be real about what we're talking about. So, and, 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 and those terms were made to make that, so that the cops felt comfortable having the conversation. This isn't a comfortable conversation. It's an uncomfortable conversation. Right, just like what, what Trump has exposed in this country, right? The, the cancerous tumor of racism that we have buried with policy and respectability politics. And look, we've gone past this. He ripped the, the cover off of that. And all of a sudden America is forced to look at who the hell America has always been. That is actually though a good thing because it gives us an opportunity to actually deal with the shit, to radiate the hell out of that thing, to put healing oils on it, to do whatever we have to do to get to the other side. So we can't be, be having these conversations comfortably. It's not comfortable for the mother of Tamir Rice to talk about the murder of her son. It's not comfortable for Oscar's mother to talk about the murder of, of, of her son. These are not comfortable conversations. Body cameras, guess what we found out about body cameras? Cops that had them on were actually more likely to perpetrate violence than not. And why were they not useful for black people? Because whose perspective do they show? Not ours, they show the cops perspective. Police commissions, you know, the Black Panther Party, one of their one of their early and, and consistent demands was about civilian control of the police, the civilian control of whatever it is that we have that's, you know, implementing the rules. Because we, we do need rules, right? As a society, we need rules. And, and who's enforcing those rules and how? And, and I believe in that deeply. And, and, I, and I think that one day we'll create a police commission that actually has teeth to pull us into radical reforms, which don't tinker around the edges of this behemoth, but actually blow the whole goddamn thing up and then lovingly replace it with something new that works for all of us. That commission doesn't exist, not here in Oakland. There's folks that a lot of you about that, not here in Oakland. So, so that's what I think about those things. I mean, I think we keep doing them, but you know, ultimately we started engaging in the reform world so we could push radical reforms that don't reinforce the status quo. And also because we were like, okay, we're being a little 
full of ourselves, aren't we? Because the reality is we're saying we're not gonna engage in reforms that might actually stem a little bit the tide of black bodies falling all over this country. And so we believe it's all roads in. We need reforms, we need alternative models, we need you know community uh, driven things. We need cops not being the answer to the social ills. We need, we need we need all of the things at all of the the governmental levels and most importantly at the grassroots community level. Thank you so much, Kat. Uh, this has been really extraordinary for me. The the power of your voice. You're an inspiration. So thank you for sharing this. I would love to know more about the anti police terror project, and so I'm going to be staying in touch with you and figuring out how it's growing and what it's doing on the ground, and then perhaps one day you you and I can share a cell together. It would be a, it would be an honor. So thank you very much. We will stay in touch. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Stay healthy. Bye. That's it for this conversation. As I said, stay tuned for more conversations. And in the meantime, I'd like to thank Professor Smith, Brooke Hopkins from the Law School's Criminal Justice Policy Program for sending us off to safe hands. Brian Welch, also of the HKS PCJ, for his support. And finally, to Poddington Bear, who, as always, composed our theme music.